Hi everyone, the Ask Mike Show. We are back again and I've got a very special guest today. We have Sheila Conlin, who is a casting director and producer. A lot of the programs include Hell's Kitchen, amongst other things. So Sheila, thanks for being a guest. Hello, thank you for having me as your guest. I'm very honored. So would it be a massive exaggeration to say that you made Gordon Ramsay who he is today? <laughs> well, I actually did not make Gordon Ramsay who he is today. Gordon Ramsay definitely is responsible for that. <laughs> However, I was a very uh, instrumental, I had an instrumental part in making uh, Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmares, um, you know, to help adapt it to the U.S. sensibility. That I did have a big hand in. Part of a great team where we saw the value of Gordon and the show, both shows, which I love. Kitchen Nightmares is one of my favorites, mm -hmm. uh, but I love Hell's Kitchen. But we really, um, the team that we had um, was great. And it, and it did need a lot of tweaking from the, the, the British shows, you know, to the U.S. Um, and, you know, we made them much bigger, louder, I think, um, and obviously more complicated in filming. <laughs> That's just the way we do things. So was it more about matching it to the culture then? Because it wouldn't be received in the same way? Like, what was the, the main reason for it? I think it had to do mostly, well, it mostly had to do with the pacing and um, because we see things much quicker here, faster. Um, it had to move faster. It had to be a little bit more sensationalized as far as um, the climax of the, the challenges and the intensity of the situation that was going on. So I, I think yeah. that's what we heightened a lot more than from the British, uh, the British versions of those shows. Um, so I think adding a little bit more punch to that. And of course we Americans, I think too, are, you know, it's the competition factor for Hell's Kitchen, especially. I believe we really amped that up a lot more. And I, and we also took some of the challenges and competitions outside of the kitchen, which is the British format was more strictly in the kitchen. Uh, so we added that element. Kitchen Nightmares really added a lot more. It was a longer show, um, for one, than the than the British one, and it really do you know delved into uh, the family element, um, the owners, and 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 you know the struggle. Um, I think we really got into that a lot more, a lot more detail. It's interesting how. It speaks a lot to the personality of the person watching the programs. And I, what, what I found really interesting there is how you've got to match it a little bit more so that it's just a more interesting for the watcher or the listener. You know, someone's multitasking, they're having to listen to it, they can't quite pay attention, you know, they're doing something else. So it's interesting how that, that tends to work. Is that something that happens with all of the the shows and programs that you do produce, you factor in like, the personality type of the person watching? Um, I don't think so much. Uh, no, we did, really didn't focus on that. I mean, we would focus on who is our audience, right? So I, I think we wanted a general wide audience to be able to tune in, obviously. Um, 
because the more viewers, the better, the more success of the show. I believe we thought more about to inform and entertain a wide uh, audience and to reach a wide audience. You know, Hell's Kitchen is very entertaining. And, you know, even though we have the bleeps here and there uh, with the language, it's still a family program. You know, the whole family can sit down and watch it. And same with Kitchen Nightmares. So it's it's not it wasn't narrow. It wasn't a niche um, type of programming just for people who love food or restaurants. It was it was entertaining for all types of people. It was competition. Who's going to win? And they want to see people go through all of these challenges and see if they can come up. You know, who's going to be the winner? So what what I really found curious when I was doing a little bit of research into yourself was there is a lot of variety in the shows that you say yes to and that you decide to to cast and produce. And it got me thinking about how do you how do you decide what shows to say yes to and what shows to say no to? Like, do you have questions that you always ask yourself? Any like common themes across the shows? Do you have a vision for something and then pick the best show that fits? So do you base it off your own thought process in the moment? Like what goes through your mind when you go, that one will do, but this one we won't? That's a great question. Um, and I don't get asked that very often. Um, I do have a process and I do have criteria. Um, in the very beginning, because I, I was at, at the ground floor of reality television here in the US. So the one thing that's very important for me is I was uh, really well known for doing first run shows. So, you know, that, and, and of course that was easy in the beginning because everything was first run, right? Um, it was new. Nobody had done it before. Now, that's not to say that there was a version in the, you know, in, in the UK, like we were talking about Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmares. But for here for the US, very important for me that it's a first time show, right? So, because I love to be part of the development process that trying to figure out who would, who would want to be a part of this show, how to find the people to be a part of it. I love that challenge. So number one, first run show. Number two, it has to have integrity. And what I mean by integrity is that the show is true uh, to what it's, it's, it's being portrayed, right? So we know clearly you go in, you're going to compete for this prize and these are the rules and it's pretty clear cut. There's no hidden twists or turns and it's also not mean spirited. Um, I like my shows to be definitely helping people, something where people can win something and where it's a, a very clean, simple format. Um, now I can't say that a couple of my shows like true beauty that had a twist, but it was a good twist. It was a good twist. And so I didn't mind that, but other shows that I would say no to or turn down is if, um, you know, it was more made up, not authentic. So I don't like things that were scripted or fake. The shows I chose to work on had to be authentic had to be the real deal and have have some integrity in it and to make people feel good that they were being a part of it. 
I was not a part about it. You know, I didn't want to be a part of anything mean spirited or fake. Now, later on in reality TV, the fakeness came came through. They were creating the shows of like this group of friends know is know each other. Um, you know, the housewives, the you know, this and that. I mean, a lot of that stuff was not real. Yeah, I, I was very fortunate to be able to pick and choose the shows that I wanted to do. Um, and I still am today. Um, so again, you know, really having to be a first run show, um, authentic, have integrity, you know, as I, as reality TV progressed, um, other types of formats came up that it was a little more forced, a little more fake, you know, duck dynasty was fake. You know, the, the, the real housewives is a great franchise and it's super successful, but for me, it wasn't anything that I was interested in doing. Um, so that, that, that was, that's pretty much my criteria. Now, you know, there are some things that I did do behind the scenes that I didn't take credit for because I would get called in and asked to help fix. So let's say it's a show. I'm not going to name some of them. <laughs> They've been in season two or three or four, but they're just stuck and they couldn't find the cast. It was getting more difficult. Um, I would get the phone calls to say, hey, can you come in and help us figure out how to get this cast for the season? Because we're we're coming you know, to an impasse. And so I would do some of those things behind the scenes. Right, but I didn't tell <laughs> so you actually got to a point where people wanted your help with their own shows that you didn't have as much of a, a sort of a hand in exactly and I didn't take credit for those either I was like you can leave my name off of there that's fine just pay me and I will help you fix what's going on because you have to remember well maybe you don't have to remember the thing is I was the very first person in reality TV in the U.S. to do the casting. Um, it started out at Fox with Bachelorettes in Alaska. And then Lynn Spillman was a, cast, a scripted casting director at CBS. And so she was doing scripted. And then when they brought in uh, Survivor, they asked her to do that. And that came a little bit after we did Bachelorettes in Alaska. So I was really the first one to figure out how to find real people, uh, how to find the right real people to for the right show, how to vet them, how to make sure it's a good match for them and for us. So it was pretty much, I, I always say, the matriarch of reality TV casting. <laughs> what I find quite um, interesting is how, if you go in with, suppose that you can fall back on almost to help you make your choices and make your decisions do you ever find that that made the process easier and then were there any moments when you had to have some important difficult decisions because you didn't want to compromise those oh a, a lot of times yes I mean let's see there were many times that I had some difficult decisions to make um, and it really had to do with is this the right person for this show? Um, and, you know, those challenges came with the network and with the producers that I would work with. Um, for sure on Hell's Kitchen, once it became very successful and we were into like seasons eight, nine, 10, you know, a lot of times 
the producers really just wanted to make fun of someone, right? Um, in the beginning, and they know they would get uh, voted off right. because there was no way they had the skill or part of the skill to actually make it through. But they were such a great character. And I felt a lot of times that that was wrong. And then, and, 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 I, and I did take a look at, though, the person that we were talking about. And I really made sure, can this person handle it? You know, they want to try. They do have a passion to compete for this show. They do have a passion for cooking and want to <clears throat> own their own restaurant, right? So if they had those few things and they had a good sense of humor about themselves or about their quirkiness, um, and that, then I was okay with it. There was a couple times when there are some people that I thought, if you if you make fun of them or in a slight way, or this person gets kicked off right off the bat, it's going to ruin them. It's going to crush them. Um, and that they wouldn't be able to handle it, right? Emotionally. And of course, we do all the background process to make sure people are psychologically, emotionally, and physically capable to go into these challenges and competition because it's it's a lot. Um, so I would stand up for some of these people, even though I think, I know they want this show. I know they want to do it. I know their heart's in the right place, but this would just floor them if, if you know, and, and that was, that was different from what the psychological or emotional report would say. Right. Um, I would stand up for it and say, guys, I just don't think you should do it with this person. I really just don't think you should do it. And, you know, they would listen to me, which was great. So I, I was very grateful for that. Um, so my voice did matter. Yeah, yeah, must have been, must have been tough to have to go against some of the the tests that the other professionals were doing as well, because obviously they they know what they're doing. You have to sort of assume that, right? If they're doing their job, you know they're going to be good at their job. You should have to sit there and go. I just don't see it. I just don't see them handling the show. Have you ever had that sort of? Not not a conflict, but have you ever had to speak to everybody, including the person that this conversation would be about, and ask them what they felt as no. well? Like, did, no, did, did no, they no. Make no, no, no. You can't do that. People apply for the show, and there's a very strict regiment for that, right? And it's all everybody gets a fair shot at applying. Everyone can apply. If you get to the next level, you get to another interview and another interview. So there is this process and that is very pure. And we take a look at all things, all the criteria to make sure, do they have the criteria as they're moving along? Once they get to a certain point, that's when we're really, when we're down to the final selects, where we're taking so many of the applicants and we're flying them to Los Angeles to go through the final casting process. That's when we take a really, really hard look. Um, and sometimes people will come out and they're going to go through that final process. But after that one, that's when we, we have to go, is this really right for them? And is it really right for us? But no, we would never, you never go in and tell an applicant, um, I really don't think you're right for this. You didn't make it because of this. It's really here. You have a, everybody has an equal opportunity. 
And what, what we decide on our end is totally up to us. And actually, the network has the final say. The network has to sign off on everything. Now, we're, 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 we're approaching them and saying this is who we feel is best. But at the end of the day, the network signs off on everything. They're the ones paying for it. They're the ones that, that it's, you know, it's, it's their show in a sense. Got it. So it's almost yeah. like you want oh. to sort of do as you can, yeah, and then the rest is up to them. Right, right. And then, you know, I do tell people, sometimes in the beginning um, of the interview process, I'd be like, really, why are you interviewing for this show? Or why are you auditioning for this show? <laughs> you, you know, it's like, wait a minute, do you just want to be on TV? Like, a lot of times I'll do that. And and that's one of my big criteria too, is like, if you just want to be on TV, you're probably not going to get past my interview process. You have to really want to do this show. And it's either to improve yourself, to win something, and you're qualified. But if you're just trying to fake it, it's like, oh, it's not going to happen with me. It's not going to happen. Have you got ways of finding out that? It's almost like being in in, it. Because when if you're interviewing for, say, a job, let's say, one of the things that I've noticed is the interviewer will ask a question that they know the answer to, to see if you're just trying to please them or you're just trying to, you know, just to try to fake through the interview. Do you have any sort of things that you would do to sort of let them show you that they just want to be on TV or they're trying to fake it or just kind of showboat their way through it? Oh, yes, very much so. I have my ways. I'm a, a master interviewer. Um, of course, because I created how to interview people for reality TV and it's the bullshit meter, you know, and I can really see through it. Number one, it all, it also has to be <clears throat> if they're really uninhibited and they're willing to tell you everything. So mm-hmm. that's important to me, too, because whether the cameras are on or off, they have to be willing to be themselves. And it's a natural thing. Yeah. Um, I find the bullshit meter for me is people that just, as you said, they're trying to answer a question and the way they're going to answer it is what they think I want to hear. I I can see that a mile, a mile away. It's so clear. And, and I will continue in that process, especially if I think someone that I may be able to crack them or really get to it. And I have to sort of break through or peel those layers uh, out of them. Um, to go look, okay, cut the crap. Tell me, <laughs> I want to hear the truth. <laughs> I put them through the paces of the interview process. And if they pass that, then they're golden to go to the next step and the next step and the next step. But it really is that first interview is where we weed people out for that bullshit meter. Do they just want to be on TV? Is this not right? Um, are they full of shit? Now, the other thing on the cooking shows too, we did we would follow up. Did this person work at this restaurant? We did ask questions, you know, that would say, do you know what, uh, um, you know, puree is or, or a a certain type of cooking utensil? Um, What's this used for? Um, If you had these ingredients, what would you do? So we did put them through some of those paces um, and tests to see what they knew. You know, um, and but then, you know, you can't just rely on that because some people have that natural talent and they may not know some of the technical terms 
or had that classical training or gone to a culinary school, because that was not one of our requirements. And I'm speaking, obviously, uh, Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Um, they just had a natural ability and their food could be amazing and taste amazing, but they may not know any technical terms. Yeah. Now, we didn't have people cook for us. We did not. So that was really, really trusting a gut instinct. And, I, and, and how I did that was a lot how they talked about it and how they described how they made stuff. So I would have them tell me, how do you start it? How do you make it? What does it taste like in the end? So, you know, we couldn't always be right with that. But, you know, a, a, a good amount of the time we were pretty spot on. Um, now, the best thing is you have someone who believes they are making the best dish. And it's phenomenal. And it sounds like their process is great. Yeah. But then as you see, you've seen from the show, when Gordon goes to taste, taste it, he's just like, wow, this is horrible. This is gross. And, you know, that was that worked for our show. That worked for our show. Have you ever had people sort of surprise you? Because you've got to be an amazing reader of people to be able to do what it is that you do. You've got to make some judgments, make some assumptions and then question them to see if you're right. You know, one of the, one of the things that that's one of the things that, that, that I tend to do is if I'm interviewing someone, not just for the podcast, but for other things as well, I go in with an assumption based on the information that I have. And then I try to test myself to see if I'm right and then test them to see if they're right or wrong as well. So it's one of a mutual thing because it, <laughs> thought of a better expression it speeds up the whole process if you're trying to learn about somebody in the interview it'll double or triple the length of the interview trying to learn about someone as well so that's one of the things that i started to do it did work it did have some success with it but did you ever have someone surprise you anyone that you had to take a chance on that did better than what, than what you thought they would oh yes a hundred Absolutely. You are spot on with that question or with that uh, inquiry, because yes, I got surprised many times, which was great. Um, we love that. That's amazing. You do have to trust that gut at, in the very beginning to go, is there, there's something about that person. There's something about this person. Let's see where we can take it. And the surprise has been both ways. I had really high hopes for certain people and they get in there and you're fighting like hell because you already, you love them. You've done a pre-interview with them. You know, you've just like, oh my God, I want this person. You're rooting for them, but yeah. they just fall short. They don't have it. They don't come to the table. They don't bring it. So that's disappointing. But then on the other side, the ones that you're kind of taking this chance on and you're like, well, I don't know. I'm not really into it. But then they turn around and surprise you and you're like, whoa. This is a great surprise. So yes, both, both ways it happens. We, you know, I set up a very strict interview process and how I've taught everybody that's worked for me is that application is golden. We ask several questions that may seem like the same question in many different ways because we want to see how they write it down. Then we study the, my rule was you have to study that application, highlight key points and look at things and how they answered. Then you go, a lot of times we would also do a pre-interview on the phone with them. 
And so you get a little bit more info out of them and their personality. Then it's time for the main interview. And now you sort of have your armor, your arsenal of stuff. And you go in and you ask, and then you find out more. And you In every interview, it always happens. Something new should be revealed. And that means you're a really good interviewer. If you're finding out something more. Um, and it, cause it just leads and it should lead into something more. Um, yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite. It is my favorite part of this process besides the development and the creation of the beginning and how we're going to do everything is really being there one-on-one. Now I couldn't do that a lot with everybody, but what I would do before any of these people would go to producers I watched every single interview that all my casting producers would do. And I worked with the editors to edit them. And when we edited them, we didn't edit out or make them look better or, or better or worse. It had to be that they could say, they could speak a sentence that they had a full thought process. And the only thing we were editing down was just for time, taking the best of what they their interview was and putting it down. But we did not alter anything or change anything. Um, the other interesting thing is, in the very beginning, we used to go out to different regions. And sometimes our first interview with these people, we would be in a big ballroom at a hotel or at a parking lot at a radio station. And we'd have someone's interview that they just filled out, but we're quickly having to look at it. And then we were doing like two or three minute, put someone in the chair and go, hey, okay, da, 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 da. And then you had to mark yes or no, or maybe because you were doing callbacks within the next two or three days in that city. So it, you know, your interviewing skills had to be really sharp and your instinct had to be really good. Um, But it was exciting. Those were exciting times. Now everything's done on Skype or Zoom. And it's like, ah, it's so frustrating. Yeah, it's very hard to beat the the face-to-face interaction because you pick up on so much. You pick up on their body language. And one of the things that, that I found is their lower body can tell a lot more about a person than the upper body because we have a bit less control over it. So whenever I would talk to someone face-to-face and standing up, I'd always glance a little bit at their feet. If they were interested, they'd be facing me. And if they wanted to get away from the conversation, they'd be facing somewhere else. So I'd go, okay, cut this one short. Or I'd go, oh, they're really interested. We'll keep this going. So it's interesting how you you can pick up on a lot more just by being face-to-face. Oh, yeah. And it's an energy reader, too. And when I interview, I'm engaged 100 percent, you know, because that's the other thing that drives me crazy. People in my industry that don't have the interview skills think they do. And basically, they're just in there. They, they want to hear the sound of their own voice. And, and I go, you're not getting to know the person. I mean, I've, I've fired people before. I'm like, no, you can't interview. I would put my, people that came to work with me they had to go through a process before they could actually be an interviewer. Hands down. They had to work on several shows. They had to watch my interviews. They had to, you know, really, really be trained. Um, Because there is that thing. I mean, first of all, you want that trust and it's eye contact and you have to thoroughly 
be interested and engaged. And that you've got to let them know that, that you are 100% there for them. And that's what I would do. Sort of my brain would just, I'd have to turn it that way. And it's like, this is all that matters right now is that person who I'm interviewing and who they are. Um, even when they're tough and you can't get through to them, uh, you know, I would stay 100% consistent with my, you know, what, what I'm putting forth. Um, and then I know at the end of the thing, if they just could not engage or go there with me, you know, it's not going to work. What else do you tell yourself before you go into interviews then? Because you mentioned being focused, you mentioned being present. I imagine you get rid of certain distractions as well, depending on where you do the interview. What sort of self-talk do you have before you go into these conversations? You know, I I don't think I really have any self-talk before. I think for me, it's for me, it's been sort of a natural process. And so I've relied on that. You know, at, when I started, I just started. I didn't really have, I mean, I had a little bit of a format like, okay, read the application. I have my list of interview questions that I want to go to. I mean, nowadays, because I've been doing this so long, I mean, after, after a few years, I didn't even have to look at a list of interview questions. Even if it was a new show or whatever, I would just know it off the top of my head because I was so involved in the development, the planning of it, the application. But I think for me, going into it, you're right, is no distractions. I mean, you got to turn the cell phone off. Usually I have a camera person in the room with me and then someone taking notes, doing the logging, um, the time code and the logging. And I just zoomed in and zeroed in and gone, this is, this is my opportunity to get to know this person. And it's, it's also for the benefit of the show. I need and want the best people to be on that show. And I won't stop looking or interviewing till I find them. Have you ever been close to the deadline and you still had interviews to, to manage? I mean, I know it's a bit of a hypothetical, right? You probably turn around to me and go, Mike, I've been great. I've always been early. It's been fantastic, but I'm asking, hopefully, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, Sheila, that you've got something where you've been close to the wire and you've had to pull something out of your pocket somehow. You've had to just throw things together and make it work, make it happen on the deadline. And you were so close and you managed to do it. Do you have a story like that for us? I have many of those stories for you, Mike. The <laughs> stories of we're on a deadline and we still don't have this person or that person or, you know, uh, the right, you know, the right numbers to be able to do the final selects with. Um, many of those. And it's not so much, I can explain it this way because yes, I am very organized and I have an amazing timeline and scheduling on how I do this. And like I said, I put a lot of effort into outreach and research and pre-interviewing and pre-planning. So that can go all swimmingly well. Where we get clogged up is a lot of times the producers or the network will be like, um, okay, well now, you know what? I really, I really want to find somebody about, uh, you know, I need, I need someone with more hair that's blonder. I need something, I need more females now. I don't want as many males. Um, can you find, some, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? So we have to pivot and always pivoting up until the last minute. Always, always, always. Um, Hell's Kitchen after a while ran like 
a, a, a great well-oiled machine. Yeah. And it was so popular that we had a great amount of applicants. However, I never just trusted that process. Oh, look at all these people that uh, have applied. This is what we're going to do. No, I still did grassroots. Pick up the phone. Find out who who's that hidden nugget, that, that the little golden, uh, you know, that rock underneath uh, the, the I, I can't even think of how to say it now. Um the piece of gold under the rock, you know, yeah. find it, go overturn every rock, go looking for this person that doesn't realize that they should be on the show. Um, so I still do a lot of that. But, you know, Utopia, when I did Utopia, that was challenging. And that was on Fox. And that was a John DeMaul show that was very successful. Well, became successful in Denmark, I believe. And ours did not end up becoming a thing. It had all the right ingredients to um, to do it, but I think it was before its time and it should have been streaming, um, not an edited show. That was a challenge. We had to find people to create a new society and to give up their life for a year. Wow. From doctors wow. to farmers to... <laughs> creatures to you know all from all walks of life we ca that was a seven eight month process of casting wow. to get the initial the initial um cast to go in and then we still had to do replacements and different things because the goal was for the show to go on and on yeah um i mean that was never ending Oh. Never ending, but it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating though. Um, that was just sort of like two, we had to do, I came up with a campaign that we sort of brainwashed people, you know, like doing uh, 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 billboards and, and the advertising and going, why wouldn't you want to do this? Why wouldn't you want to have your own society? You, are you fed up with, you know, your life the way it is now or the way things are run? This is your platform. This is your opportunity. So, I mean, it was a constant thing like that to appeal to those people that were like, you're right. I'm out of here. I'll do it. I'll give up everything and I'll go away from my family. I'll do all of this. <laughs> and we did it. And we wow. had, I have to say that was a freaking great cast. It was amazing. Um, I had a doctor. I mean, it was just, it, it was great. What was the hardest sort of occupation, profession, or sort of spot to fill on that one? They were, this is crazy. They were looking for, and, and it's not that we were, we were stereotyping, but we were looking for people that had skills, different skill sets, right? So who could plant? Who was into ecosystems? Who was into... You know, and then the, the dichotomy of it all too, you know, who isn't into farming, who, you know, it, it's it, people that I, I think, okay, we were looking for like someone who could run a business that maybe didn't run a legitimate business in their regular life. You know, I think we were looking and we got some crazy requests from the executive producer oh, from the network. They wanted someone who was like a three percenter in a bike gang. I'm like, they're not going to come on TV. I mean, however, I did find some 
that had already like had murdered someone, went to jail, did their time and had been a, a retired three percenter, you know, motorcycle gang person. Right. Found him. And, you know, because I said anybody actively doing that is not going to give up all the money they're making and the world they're in. I go, I, I, how can I appeal to this guy to do it? Why would I take everything away? Right. Um, <laughs> or why would they give all that up? And these guys, I go, you guys to also look at that, that society or that, that mindset. They don't care about being famous. Typically, they just really don't care. Now, I, I'm always an optimist. Um, I can, I, I always say I will find it. And I, I do. So even in that narrow, as I've done my data research or psychological research of this type of person or this type of whatever, um, I always say there is still possibility. And I never say no. And I usually end up finding it. Usually, Usually, I would say maybe nine times, nine times out of 10. <laughs> is being an optimist something that you've always had? Is that something that you've had since the beginning, the sort of the go-getter, I can find the attitude, or is that something you've had to work on? No, I think I was fortunate enough to have this gift, this, um, I, I, since I was a young kid, always interested in people always interested in people with a talent or had talent. And I had this sort of sixth sense that I could see talents in people. And I'm not talking about just singing or dancing or this it was something I was very intuitive at an early age of what, what the, the best qualities a person had. And I would, I remember practicing it also as a kid on my relatives you know, it was a way to get for me to get what I wanted. I knew, you know, Aunt Kathy or Aunt Patty was like this or grandma, even with my parents, you know, how do I appeal to this? But I, I, I think I truly, here's one thing I learned. I was truly non-judge, non-judgmental from a very early age. And I think some of that came from, I was a dancer. I grew up as a dancer doing tap dancing, ballet, you know, all the stuff as a kid. And I was offered a position at age, was I 15? To go on the road and do industrial shows. And industrial shows were, you know, things like for Harley Davidson or Toro or Dairy Queen. It was called Point of Purchase. It was the, the conventions that the creatives in those, with those products would get together and from these conventions, they would pull out how to do a commercial for their new products. They would write the jingle to the song, you know, and basically pull out what's the commercial, how are they going to market and advertise it, right? So we had singers, dancers, musicians that would write the jingles. Me as a dancer would, you know, we would do the performances or the point of purchase, if you will. and at an early age to go and travel with people that were older than me. And I saw all kinds of different things happen, you know, on the road, on the thing. And I was just like, Oh, this is interesting. But I know this person as this, when we're at home and rehearsing, I know this person with this life, da da da, da. on the road. 
it became very different. And everybody had a different side of them on the road. And, but I was just, I, it just opened my eyes. But again, for some reason, there was no judgment. I was just like, this person is really beautiful and great. And I always saw the good. So I think I took a lot. I took, that came with me. That stuck with me. And I just pursued everything I did with that attitude. That's a very good way of looking at it because I've found as well with my own experience that when you have your eyes open, it's very difficult to close them again. And it's almost like you've had your eyes open, but you've kept that seeing the talents that people have, whether they're hidden or or otherwise, you sort of did both at the same time. Had your eyes open and go, whoa, this is amazing. Everyone's got all these different things I had no idea existed. And you sort of taken that into the, the next steps as you got older. Right. I for some reason I just saw the beauty in all of that and and that everybody it was just like we're we're complex. You know, there's more than just one dimension. And I remember trying to explain that to my relatives too. Like if they got in arguments or <laughs> this or they would say something about someone. I'm like, why would you say that? You know, I don't know. I don't know. It was just something weird. Um, even with my friends, I was friends with many different types of people in my high school and in my grade school. I mean, from, we used to call it like the jocks, the burnouts, the, this, the, 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 the nerds. Yeah. I had friends in every category, you know, and I didn't, I never limited myself anywhere. Um, so yeah, so I think that's a unique quality that I had early on and it definitely, definitely played a part in what I did in my career. A hundred percent. I can definitely relate to some of the things that you said there. I mean, it's very, it's very personal, I guess. It's very individual to the, you know, to yourself. So I appreciate you sharing that as well. It's not always something people are prepared to admit. So, so to, to this day, obviously things are going pretty well, you know, post Hell's Kitchen, everything seems to be going okay, sort of movies are going all right, you start to feel the sense of like, you know what you're doing, the interviews are going well, the castings are going well, do you ever feel the pressure now to, to live up to the expectations or do you treat everything as a blank slate and you go at it sort of from the ground up again each time? I look at it a blank slate every time. Brand new. I mean, I have to, I have to rely on my resources and my experience of what I've done before for sure. What worked didn't work, but any new project going in is like, wow, let's start this all brand new. Yeah. Just because I've been doing it so long, there are things that just kick into gear. Not none. It's more about a system that kicks into gear. And then I use to pull upon, not so much creative. I usually look at this going, let's open this up as a whole new creative process. Utopia was the best on that. I literally just threw everything out the window of what I had done before and started that brand new. It was phenomenal. I had. I had about 75 people on my staff. I said seven months. We had a $3 million casting budget. It was unbelievable. It was phenomenal. We created campaigns. Like I said, we traveled all to every single state. 
we had like these caravan or like a caravan, like a bus, you know, with posters on the side of it. I mean, it was, it was exciting. It was, it was so cool. Um, so I think that was one of my best, um, new processes, if you will. Um, I mean, I've done everything. Um, I have done, you know, go to show up to, um, uh, support groups for people who just got divorced. Um, you know, if I'm looking for people that were divorced that want to, you know, meet someone new, I've gone to, I mean, uh, I've gone to pet, um, weddings, uh, just crazy (laughs) things. I've been to a million strip clubs. Um, you know, it just, it doesn't matter. Um, I will do whatever it takes. And that's also the fun of it too. The exploration and to dig into it. And like I said, it's that one-on-one that makes the difference. Well, that is a particularly nice way to round off. We've spoken about so much. I've really enjoyed this. It's been really cool. If people were to learn more about you, Sheila, where can people find out more? Okay, you can find me at Conlon Co. TV on Instagram. Facebook is The Conlon Company. Uh, my website, theconlincompany.com. And I believe my Twitter is at Conlin Co. TV as well. Awesome. Well, for those that are listening, if you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss out any of our shows. And uh, Sheila, it's been great to chat and I look forward to keeping in touch. I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. It was my pleasure.